little over 10 years ago, I took a trip to uh, my hometown. I grew up in Hong Kong, and I had the privilege of taking a group of people on a short-term missions trip back to that, that city, uh, a place that they had never been, but I know like the back of my hand. Uh, I, uh, I know how to get from point A to point B. Uh, I know what bus to catch and what uh, bus stop to get off on. I know what subway uh, to catch and what uh, subway station to, to get off on. I, I, I know the streets. I know what alleys to, to take shortcuts through. I know when to go left and when to go right. I know that city like the back of my hand. And so it was kind of fun to take this group of 12 to 15 people with me on this trip to, uh, to my hometown. And because uh, they'd never been there, and uh, but I, even though it was, it's an overwhelming city, it's it's 7.1 million people living in a densely populated area, uh, a condensed area. It's uh, it can be a little bit overwhelming, but I assured them that I would be with them, so no worries, just follow my lead. And uh, I don't know why you're laughing right now. Uh, but, but so we're on the trip, and we got these uh, 12 or 15 people. We've kind of said, this is an adventure. Come join us. And we sort of uh, in, invited people to, to join the team. And uh, the, the trip had its challenges, uh, but its greatest challenge uh, came in the form of, of a person uh, whose name uh, was Kathleen. Uh, I, I should have known from the very beginning of his trip that this, there was going to be trouble because we went to the Portland airport, and the plan was that you go through security, at the airport, and once you get through, because you never know, you know who's going to get pulled aside and how long it's going to take for one person. Uh, when, when we go through security as a family, Trina always gets pulled aside because she looks frightening and dangerous. And for whatever reason, she gets pulled into the side room all the time. And uh, so we just decided we're going we're gonna to meet at Starbucks, and we're all together there. Then we'll head down to the gate and catch our flight. So we're at Starbucks, we're all drinking coffee, and, uh, and, uh, and everyone's kind of getting settled, and I hear this page, you know, at the airport, they page you to the white courtesy phone, uh, I hear this page, and, they're, uh, and I think they're paging me, and, and I thought, no, nah, they couldn't be paging me, so I sit there, keep drinking my coffee, and I hear it again, you know, would Steve Fowler please go to the white courtesy phone? Like, well, that's weird. And uh, so I go to the white courtesy phone and think maybe there's something happened at home. And, um, and I, I pick up the phone and I'm talking to someone. They say that there's somebody who is traveling in a group with you and they're lost. And so like, really? Because I think they're all at Starbucks. And uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll come down. They got a, this person in the security office. I hang up the phone, go back to Starbucks to tell the team and count heads. And sure enough, we are missing one person. And, uh, and, and it's Kathleen. And so I go to the security office and pick her up. She's a little bit, you know, stressed out. And uh, she had forgotten that we had this meeting point at uh, Starbucks. She'd gone down to the gate and thought we had left without her, which uh, really wouldn't have been a bad idea, <laughs> considering what, what was about to happen. Uh, but we, we, we got there, the good leader that I am. I took a whole team with me, and I brought them all back. Uh, but we got on the plane. We got to Vancouver, B.C., and, uh, and she actually held up the plane because she spent so much time in the restroom. Uh, the plane couldn't pull away, and we had to you know, tell the pilot to hold on. She got on the plane. We got going to Hong Kong. Day two on the trip, we're walking down these streets that I've walked on when I was a kid. I mean, I know exactly where to go. And, uh, and it, it, the streets are pretty packed full of people. The sidewalks are jammed. You're really kind of darting in and out of people. It's easy to bump into people. In fact, that's very normal. Uh, and uh, we're going around this corner, and we're headed to the, the mission office, the CMA, the, the, the denomination we're a part of. And um, I get around the corner and start counting heads, and we're missing somebody. 
And you can guess who it is. It's, it's Kathleen. And so I tell this team who's never been to this, t- this city before, and they're like looking all around at all this stuff and all these people, and they're a little bit, you know, experiencing some culture shock. And, and so I say, stay right here. I promise you, I will come back. You just stay right here. Don't move. And I got to go back, and I got to see if I can find Kathleen. So they're there, standing there, assuring me they're not going to leave. And I'm walking back out to this busy street. I mean, literally, there are thousands of people on the sidewalk. And I needed to walk around and see if I can find Kathleen. I don't know where we lost her. I'm just sort of tracing the steps back to where the, or the subway where we got off. And as I'm walking, I'm looking in every direction. As, as I walk by a store, I look in the store, and there's Kathleen. Uh, she's picking up something and checking a price tag. And sh- she's shopping. Uh, <laughs> And so I walk in the store, and you know, I, I like to think I'm a pretty calm person. Uh, and, uh, and so I just kind of walked in the store, walked up behind Kathleen. I got very close and just said to her quietly in her ear, how's it going? Uh, and uh, she looked at me a little startled, and I'll save you all the gory details of what I said next. I just extracted her from the store and reunited her with the team. Um, actually, you know, on this whole trip, the most frequently asked question was, where's Kathleen? Yeah, you got it. It was every, it was like, all right, where is she? Is she with us? I mean, do we leave her? And, uh, I mean, it was, it was challenging. Uh, we had invited this team. I had invited her. Uh, I invited her on this trip with us, and I assured this whole team, look, I know this city like the back of my hand. I know the ins and outs. I know when to turn left, when to turn right. Just, I'm with you. Just, just stick with me. We'll be okay. But here's the deal, is that she wasn't so convinced she wanted to stick with me. She wasn't so convinced throughout, I mean, every day on the trip. I sound like I need a steps group. I need some healing, because I, I mean, seriously, every day. One time we're in a restaurant, uh, she went to the bathroom and then never came back. Uh, she left the restaurant. Um, sometimes we're with people who know their way, and uh, we decide we're going to go do our own thing. Um, and uh, and uh, on these on these little adventures we go on. Here's the deal: God has been inviting people throughout all of history, world history. God's been inviting people on adventures of faith. He's been taking people with him on adventures to places that he knows like the back of his hand. He knows when to go right and when to go left. He knows everything that's going to happen. He is not surprised by anything. And he invites people to join him on the journey. And he assures us of his presence. The question is, will we be with him or will we be like Kathleen, and to be distracted by everything that's around us. Will, he says to us, I'm with you. In fact, if you look throughout the, the scriptures, you'll see this time and time again. Remember that the hesitant leader Moses? Uh, Exodus chapter 3, God's calling him to, to go down to Egypt and set the people free. And, and he says to, to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 12, Moses, here's the deal. I will be with you. I know you've got all kinds of questions. I know you feel like you're, you, you don't have what it takes, but I will be with you. And that's exactly what happens. God goes with them and, and Moses sets the people free. Then when Joshua is going to take over for Moses, the leadership baton is being passed. God says to, to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1 verse, uh, verse 5, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you, Joshua. You're going into this new land. Just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. I'm with you. 
And then to a, a, a pretty fearful guy named Gideon, uh, God gives him the, the, the instruction that he is going to wipe out some oppressive, abusive people that, that are, are overtaking their land. And he says to, uh, to Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 16, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites together. God invites people on these, these faith adventures And as he invites them on the adventures, he assures them of his presence. In fact, this idea of God's presence turns into a Hebrew blessing that became very common for people to speak over other people. The book of Ruth, chapter 2, verse 4, the main character, one of the main characters in that book, Boaz, he shows up to work one day and his normal greeting to his employees is, The Lord be with you. It was a blessing. And even when the people of God mess up, they're in exile, and God's going to bring them back to this this home, this land that is theirs. Uh, God assures them uh, in in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, he assures them, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through some pretty difficult circumstances, you need to know I'm with you. And in fact, in verse 5 of that same chapter, when fear rises, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And even when you're rebuilding your cities, uh, God gives a message to a prophet named Haggai. Uh, and he, he says, Haggai, preach this message. Here's the message I want you to preach. I am with you. Are you getting this? God is inviting people on adventures of faith. And as you take those first steps of faith, as you're heading out following after God, what God is saying to you is, look, I know there's some stuff ahead of you that's unknown to you, but I'm with you. You don't know when to turn left. You don't know when to turn right. But I will be with you. And I can march you through the New Testament as well and show you examples. Like from Matthew chapter 28, when the Great Commission is given. Go into all the world. And then, lo, I will be with you always. God invites us on adventures of faith. He assures us of his presence. But the question is, will we be able to say back to God, God, I know you're with me, and I'm with you. Or will we end up being like the Kathleen's who follow after God and decide, that, well, that, that, that's something shiny over there. I'm going to go here. Well, that, that looks a little bit better than where this, is, this journey is going and, and head over there. Will I be able to say back to God, God, I know you're with me. I'm with you. I'm with you. We're doing a short little series in the month of September on, on this very thing. And we're going to look at the father of faith, a guy named Abraham. His story is found in Genesis chapter 12. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to look at a guy who takes a, a step in a major uh, a major step of faith, uh, he, he hears God and he embarks on this journey not knowing exactly where he's going, but God's given him an outrageous promise. And, um, and, and God is going to assure Abraham and say to him, I'm with you, Abraham. But what's going to happen in this journey is that there are going to be several times when Abraham's faith will be tested and where God is going to want to hear back from Abraham, I'm with you, God. I'm with you. So Genesis chapter 12, it's on page 11 in your pew Bibles, uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you. I just want to read the first nine verses here to give us a sense of context of, of this move that uh, Abram or Abraham is making. And the reason why his name is Abram early on is because God's going to change his name in this story. going to give him a new destiny as a person and, and change his name. So at the beginning, it's Abram, and eventually it'll shift over to Abraham. 
Uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. So here is, here's Abraham. Abraham and Sarah and, and all their belongings. They're, they're in, uh, in, in Mesopotamia, modern, modern day Iraq. And Abraham hears this, this call. He gets this outrageous promise. It's summarized in verse 7 here of, of chapter uh, 12. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This is good news because Abraham and Sarah don't have kids. So it's a promise of descendants. Sarah is, is barren. Uh, and that brings with it stigma. So this is good news. They're going to have descendants. You're going to have offspring. And you're going to have your own land. You're going to have your own place. And I'm going to take you to it. And so it's this outrageous promise, an assurance of God's presence. And God is going to test Abraham all along the way. In fact, uh, there, there are six, at least six tests of faith that Abraham will experience. Now, most people think of, of, of the one test of sacrificing Isaac. But actually, when you break it down, there are three tests regarding the land promise. And there will be three tests regarding the offspring promise. But let me just walk you through these. We won't get to all these tests in this series. But I want to give you sort of a summary of, of what Abraham will experience. In this land promise, he'll be tested with a famine. We'll look at that today in chapter 12 and in verse 10. And then he's going to be tested with conflict and how he handles that. And then he's going to be tested with fame and fortune. And then the offspring that promised part of this, uh, this blessing from God uh, is going to be tested as well. And the first one's going to be the test of time. In, in chapter 12, Abraham is 75 when he's told he's going to get offspring. He will have this promised child when he's 100. So we, we have the test of time. And then we'll have the test of, uh, the time, uh, the, the test of uh, trust or surrender. And you'll, we'll see that uh, later on in chapter 20, uh, I think it's 23 or 24. And then you get to the final one, which is the test of, of sacrifice. And this is, uh, this is a major uh, test, and one that most people, when they know the story of Abraham, think of. So I've got this incredible promise for you, this outrageous promise for you, Abraham, of offspring and land. And uh, Abraham makes the move, and that that uh, that... that promise that God also makes, I'm with you. Now, Abraham, are you with me when you hit each one of these bumps in the road, each one of these tests? And we're going to look at that first test, the test of famine, beginning in chapter 12, verse 10. So now, would you stand with me as I read these next uh, 10 verses? Abram has made the journey to the promised land. He's there. And then we get to verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. 
As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was, very, she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. This is God's holy word, and you may be seated. So let me ask you a question. You ever had someone promise you something that uh, as you began to think about the promise, as you began to sort of play it out in your own mind, you began to imagine what this, this promise would look like? Or, or maybe it's someone's going to take you somewhere, or it's a vacation you've got planned, or, or whatever, it is. it's a break, it's a, it's a getaway, and you've, in your own mind, you've built it up, you've got these ideas, these pictures, these, these hopes and expectations of what this will look like, and what this experience will be like. Uh, years ago, my oldest son, uh, Chase, and I, we, we were on his rite of passage uh, trip. We did that with all of our kids, and they did a one-on-one trip with me. Uh, he, he, we went to Alaska to fish. We took a tent, threw it up in the woods, did some camping. And uh, a buddy of mine named Tony, his son uh, David was turning 13 as well. So the four of us were on this trip together. And Tony was in charge of, of setting up the, the fishing trips some days we'd just walk down to a river and fish. Other days we would, uh, we'd book some of uh, these fly-in trips on these float planes and uh, go places where, where fish was so that we could uh, just have a great time with our boys. And then in the evenings we'd have conversations about the future for them. Well, one of the trips that Tony was most excited about was this trip to this river that was on private land that no one had access to. And it was stacked full of kings, a king salmon. And uh, the river would be empty of people. That we'd have it to our own, and we would slay the fish. I mean, we would. We probably have to make multiple trips back and forth with the plane just to get the fish back to camp. And uh, man, we were just imagining this the beautiful river and this land and no people and all this fish. We just had all these hopes and dreams of what this experience was going to be like. So we got on that plane that morning uh, in Alaska, flew in. It was beautiful. It was gorgeous country. The river was beautiful. And we began fishing. And we didn't get a bump. Uh, we, we, actually, it was about three or four hours later, we, we hooked our first fish. And that was the only fish that was hooked all day long. And, uh, but there were a lot of mosquitoes. Uh, there were t- 
tons of mosquitoes, and uh, we must have looked like an ice cream cone on a hot summer day to like a four-year-old, because they just looked at us, and they were dive-bombing us, sticking their little syringes in and extracting our lifeblood from us, and we were swatting them, and I remember kind of being pretty frustrated, because we'd we'd paid pretty good money to make this trip, and uh, I was a little bit uh, bitter at Tony for choosing this river, and he was pretty disappointed, and we went back with one fish and uh, you know, a zillion mosquito bites that we itch for weeks to come. It was nothing like we had expected. It was nothing that, like we had hoped or dreamt about. Now, if you're Abraham and you pick up everything you have, you load it into a U-Haul being pulled by camels and you make your way from what you know to this new land and you get there because it's the promised land, Right? I mean, you got, you got offspring that are coming. This is, this is the life of blessing. And you get to the new land, and, and what's happening in the new land? Famine. It's famine. You've left this, the, the, this green country, and you've come to brown country. You, you walk around, the grass is brown, it's crunching under your feet. You're walking through paths, and on the right and on the left are, are the skeletal remains of animals that have died of hunger or thirst. You can see their ribs sort of poking through their skin. It's really a gruesome sight. It's famine, and, and this is where God has called me. This isn't quite what I expected. And so Abraham is going to come to this point where he's going to make a decision because this promised land isn't what he had hoped or what he had expected and things aren't looking good. And it's here we need to make the observation that sometimes, sometimes it takes great faith to make a major move. Sometimes it takes great faith to pack up everything or to make a major change because you've heard God speak to you and and make that major move. Sometimes it, it takes great faith to make a major move. Sometimes it takes even greater faith to stay put. Sometimes it takes great faith to make a major move. Sometimes it takes even greater faith to stay put because staying put means pain, means discomfort, It means life could be hard. Now, Abraham is sitting in this new country, and I think he's considering um, some options, three options. Number one, uh, first option is go home. I mean, Mesopotamia is like the, I mean, it's the Willamette Valley of Iraq. It's like, you know, everything grows there. It's green, there's water, there's rivers, there's... It's, it's beautiful, and I, you know, this is ugly and dry, and the dust is being whipped up, and you've got to cover your eyes and your nose and your mouth to keep it out. I think he considers the option. We don't read that here, but I, I think like most people would. They, I'm, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go back home. Or maybe another option is I'm just going to stay put. This is where God, this is where God called me. I'm, I'm just going to stay put here because this is the new land, and maybe the circumstances will change. Or I think there's the third option, and it's, it's one where you just sort of, this, this makes sense. I mean, I'm just going to go, I'm not going to go home. I'm not, I'm not going to dart home. I'm, I'm following God, but I'm just going to take a little detour south. I'm just going to take a little detour and, and, and head to Egypt, because the word is that in Egypt, uh, there's rivers, the grass is green, and if you walk in a grocery store, there's food on the shelves, and um, and animals are alive, and it's just a short little jaunt. two-day jaunt. It's not that big of a deal, and, and when things change, I'll get back to my new land. And here in lies 
the spiritual lesson for not only Abraham, but for all of Israel throughout their history and for us today. And the spiritual lesson is this. The rational, the sensible, the reasonable, the safe alternative. These detours become the rational, reasonable, sensible, safe alternative to obedience to God. That's not that big of a deal. It's just a little detour. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, things aren't good here. People are dying. The animals are dying. There's no water. I'm just going to take a little detour. It, It makes sense. And this will be the spiritual lesson for Israel, that the sensible, the rational, the safe, the reasonable alternative to obedience to God is running to places like Egypt. In fact, you see it in, his, in Abraham's son Isaac, the promised child, who's eventually born. There's famine in the land again, and he wants to go to Egypt. When Moses is leading the people through the wilderness, and things, getting, uh, things are getting a little tough there, they're headed to the promised land, right? It's all good. They're in the wilderness, and life stinks in the wilderness, and where do they want to go? Back to Egypt, even though it means slavery. Later, when, the, when Israel is falling apart because they've disobeyed God and now there's foreign powers coming in to attack them, Judah decides that they're going to send emissaries down to Egypt to form an alliance to protect them from this attacking horde called Babylon. And listen to some of the strongest language in the scriptures as God speaks to his people from the book of Isaiah chapter 30 as he talks about this going to Egypt. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Chapter 31, just verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Egypt, Egypt will become the visible, obvious alternative to faith in the invisible, not so obvious, not so easily understandable promises of God. And so Abraham is in this promised land. There's famine and he's facing this test. And I think we can just call this test the test of not enough. You follow God, you've obeyed God, and now you find yourself in a situation where there is not enough. That's where Abraham is. Ever taken that test? Ever taken the test of not enough? Not enough money? Can't pay the bills? Losing sleep at night? Wondering how you're just going to keep life together? Thinking about taking a few detours? Maybe it's just a detour of worry and anxiety and not not trusting or not resting in God's provision. Maybe it's a detour to credit cards. <laughs> or maybe it's, it's, the, it's the test of uh, not enough peace. And there's a lot of conflict in your home. There's a lot of, 
lot of shouting. Anger rules the night. And maybe it's a temptation to go down a little detour of becoming more angry, maybe becoming violent. Maybe it's the, the test of, of not enough time. There's all this responsibility, and I, I don't have enough time to get to it. How am, I supposed, how am I supposed to get everything done at work and then everything done at home? Or how am I supposed to keep up with the kids? I just don't have enough time. And why aren't they carrying their, their, their share of the load? How come I'm doing everything? Why doesn't someone else do something? And you're tempted to take this little detour down the path to bitterness. Maybe it's just a test of not enough community. I, I'm kind of mad because I wish I had more friends. Or maybe it's a test of not enough love. And that person at work makes me feel pretty good. They make me feel 10 feet tall. And I'm just going to take a little detour here. It's the test of not enough. And Abraham faces this test and he chooses door number three and he takes his detour down to Egypt. And by the way, these detours don't start with like obvious or even any sin. I just headed down to Egypt and as we're on the trip, this uh, sense of uneasiness begins to settle in Abraham's heart, um, he gets to the, the border of Egypt, and apparently Egyptians don't have any problem with murder, but adultery is the line they won't cross. Uh, because Abraham starts thinking, he knows this, and he says, uh, you know, hey, Sarah, um, I tell you what, why don't, why don't you tell people that you're my sister? Um, and and it's, by the way, this is, it's, it's a half-truth. She is his half-sister. It was common in those days. I know to you that may be like, ew, that's kind of weird. But in those days, uh, that was fairly common. You'd, you'd marry a half-sister. So it, it's, it's kind of true. Just tell people that you're my half-sister because, Sarah, you are a knockout. I mean, you are a looker. People are going to notice you, and they're going to see you. And, I mean, you're a 10, and, and they see me. And if they see that I'm your husband, I'm gone. They're going to they're gonna take me out. But if I'm your brother, they, they'll, they'll treat me well. They'll treat you well. I mean, either way, it's going to go fine for you. They, if they kill me, they'll take you in and take care of you. If they don't kill me, you're still going to be okay. So you've got nothing to lose, Sarah. In fact, Sarah, if you really, really love me, if you really care about me, you will tell people that I'm your brother and that you're my sister. And if you think I'm exaggerating, just go to, to Genesis chapter 20, verse 13. Because that's the script that Abraham gives his wife, Sarah. Throws her under the bus. Just tell them that you're my sister. And so when they cross the border in Egypt, guess what happens? People start, start noticing Sarah. I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. That she's 75, and she's turning heads. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, oh, I'm way too old. No, you're not. I mean, she's turning heads at age 75. She's gorgeous, and, and people are noticing. Pharaoh's officials notice her. They're, they're, they're talking to Pharaoh about her, and this is Abraham's sister, so they think. And, uh, and Pharaoh does. He takes her into his harem. She becomes his wife. Abram gets a tent, and he's, he's over there. In fact, they're pouring wealth his way, and, and he's, he's acquiring more wealth. His bank account balance is rising, and, and maybe you would think, well, see, it hasn't turned out that bad. It was famine up there in Canaan, and they went down to Egypt, and, and uh, you know, Abraham's he's just picking up all this money, and, and Sarah, she's been treated well. 
But don't you think for a moment, as Abraham is lying in bed at night, that he'd give it all back as he's wondering where Sarah is and what's happening to her? It's interesting to note that what begins with just a safe little detour, not a big deal, goes from a half-truth to full-blown lies to this degradation of Abraham's character, and he fails this test miserably. He fails the test miserably. In fact, in these six tests that you'll find in the book of Genesis of Abraham's faith, where God says, I'm with you. Abraham, can you say, I'm with, I'm with you? Back to me. Abraham is going to fail miserably at least two, depending on how many tests you count, which makes me feel a little bit better. Because when you get to verse 17 of chapter 12 and you read, but God, we come to learn that the disobedience of God's chosen people will not thwart his plans in redemptive history. See, there's a promised son that's going to be born. There's going to be a nation that will come to existence and there will be a Messiah that will come from Abraham and all the descendants of the earth will be blessed. We're here because of his blessing. And the mistakes of Abraham cannot and will not thwart God's redemptive plans in history. And by the way, your mistakes, your failures, will not thwart his plans either. And I find that to be good news. There are consequences. There are negative things to taking these little detours. It's not without pain. Eventually, Pharaoh finds out. We don't know how he finds out. He finds out that he's taken someone else's wife into his harem, and and there's all these diseases. We don't know what that is, and and he is ticked off. And so here you have a Gentile ruler who's an idol worshiper who is rebuking a God follower and kicking him out of the country and saying, take your wife and get out of here. And that had to be a little bit embarrassing. And Abraham and Sarah and Lot and the whole group and all the animals and the men servants and maid servants are making their way back to Canaan. And Abraham has failed the test of not enough. Sometimes it takes great faith to make a major move. Sometimes it takes even greater faith to stay put. So let me ask you the question. Are you on the threshold of taking a detour to Egypt? Has God assured you that he's with you? And are you on the threshold? Are you on the threshold of taking a detour to Egypt? Or can you say back to God, God, I'm with you. Even though this doesn't make sense, I'm with you. How do you know? How do you know if the move you're making, because some moves are, they're the major moves of faith. Sometimes they're detours. How, how, how do you know? Now, I was thinking about this week, and I, I just started asking myself some questions. Here's a couple of questions that maybe you could ask yourself. Do you want to make this change because of problems or difficulties you're trying to avoid here, where you're at now? This place you know God's put you? Are you trying to avoid that and so that, that's why you want to make the move? Is your motivation for taking this detour one of personal safety and security? It makes sense. It's sensible. It's safe. 
But perhaps a more important question to ask is, are you putting others in danger as you take this detour? Are you tossing people under the bus? Are other people going to be hurt because you take a little detour and you've rationalized it's not a big deal? And or maybe you're here today and you're thinking to yourself, I'm in Egypt. I made that move a long time ago. Maybe my question for you would be, are you willing to listen to the rebuke of your conscience and the Holy Spirit and go home? Are you willing to go home? Sometimes it takes great faith to make a major move. Sometimes it takes even greater faith to stay put.